Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't like waiting. Don't like waiting. Let's go right now. Gotta hit the ground. Dancing for the music slows down. What I'm saying. What I'm saying. If there's something to fix. Take it to another level. It's the remix. Hello. Welcome to episode 26 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H, and today we're going to shake it up and break it down. Dr. Selena Gomez, for your sage advice. People familiar with the Karma Sense Eating Plan, available through all booksellers with all profits donated to Alice's Kids, know about the Sense component and its goal of rewiring your habits to help you be healthier, happier, and, oh yeah, save the world. They know that Selena Gomez encapsulated that section of the book into the words, shake it up, break it down. And that's what we explore in this week's episode of the Foodcast. Today I interviewed Dr. Suzanne Nixon, who had to shake up her already exemplary eating habits to address some chronic issues that were breaking down her ability to experience life. Then, Suzanne and I discuss how to shake up undesirable eating habits and cravings by breaking down the problem into individual parts. Suzanne and I are creating programs to help individuals and families eat what they love and love what they eat. So I thought this was a good opportunity for you to meet someone who's crazy enough to work with me. And we'll get into that in a moment. But first, as is my habit, rant. I frequently mention the six variables that impact your health. They are your genes, physiology, physical activity, nutrition, and mindset. And that's the list in order of what you have the least control over to what you have the most control over. You have the least control over your genes. You have the most control over your mindset. And if you were counting, I only said five. The sixth is your physical environment. And personal control over that may vary. So I didn't put that in any particular order. But regardless, the thing you have the most control over is your mindset. Let's look at an example of how this may work. We've all been there. It's been a long day at work and we're heading home. We know the only food we have left at home consists of saltines, ketchup, and grated cheese. If we're going to resort to that for dinner, we may as well just call Papa John's and get the pepperoncini in with it. But no, we feel we should eat something healthy. We decide to stop at the supermarket and get some rotisserie chicken or sushi or something. We get there and say, we're going to hit the salad bar. We deftly maneuver towards fresh vegetables and beans and away from the chocolate pudding and ever-so-tempting jello with grapes and shredded coconut. We work our way out to the cash register, proud of our accomplishment, and BAM! While we wait in line, we're confronted with a rack full of endless candy choices. After dedicating all that discipline at the salad bar, we're spent, and onto the conveyor belt goes a giant three musketeer bar of caramel, nougat, covered with chocolate. What the heck is nougat, anyway? Now, maybe we convince ourselves that we'll eat it over the course of several days, but, you know. And you can't even blame the supermarket. Their job is to sell food, even though most of the supermarket space is dedicated not to food, but to what Michael Pollan calls food-like substances. What you've just experienced are those six variables in action. And while it was your mind that decided to move the Three Musketeers bar to the conveyor belt, It was all those other variables conspiring against you to help drive that decision. Your hormonal level, your activity during the day, what you ate or didn't eat already, etc. 
And you're never going to win against them in the long term if all you do is just resist. Instead, what you have to do is observe and acknowledge. Observe all the conditions that are driving the urge. Break the process down. And then find ways to replace those conditions in the future. Shake them up. And that's what mindful eating teaches. That's what you'll learn some more about in this episode. And I include a link in the show notes to episode 8 of the Foodcast and to a YouTube presentation that gives some more detail from some previous talks that I've done. Between this episode and those resources, if you end up wanting to learn more, stay tuned for future opportunities to engage and learn. But for now, let's meet Dr. Nixon. You're about to meet Dr. Suzanne Nixon. Suzanne and I are a lot like Donnie and Marie. We come from the same place. Now, I don't mean that we're brother and sister coming from the same mother or that we're both from Utah, but we are both from the New York metropolitan area. And we both added health coaching to our portfolios through the Duke Integrative Health Program. We're also really different. If you think of the range of health and wellness therapies along a spectrum, and on the one side, you find remedies that have fully passed the test of scientific rigor. And on the other side, you have remedies that have little scientific support, but substantial anecdotal evidence that it helps some people. I sit very comfortably on the more conservative evidence-based side. And Suzanne tends towards the more open-minded approach and has tons of experience helping people with a mixture of conventional and alternative therapies. So I'm a little bit country. She's a little bit of rock and roll. We do work well together. I have to admit, sometimes science isn't ready to step up to the plate. My being all in on the efficacy of karma recognizes that fact. Sometimes what we think we know gets in the way of what we actually need to do. What you're about to hear is Suzanne's personal experience and how her persistence and open mind is leading her to a solution. I am very pleased to have with me Dr. Suzanne Nixon, who has a wealth of background in topics that would be interesting to people on the Foodcast uh, from her professional life. But in this episode, we're going to talk primarily about something from your personal life. So welcome, Suzanne. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get started, why don't you give us some background of, of what you do, who you are? Terrific. Um, I have been in the field of education counseling, psychology, holistic health, and wellness for about 40 years. My background um, is in special ed, and then in massage, bodywork, and energy medicine, and there's psychology and counseling as a mental health professional. And from there, I trained, as Dave did, with the Integrative Medicine Center at Duke University as an integrative health coach. Okay. So you're clients, just a little bit more on your professional background, what are the types of things that your clients come to you for? Really a variety of reasons why people come. Primarily, I would say 70% of my practice is mental health, so it would be people experiencing depression, anxiety, stress response, PTSD, loss and grief, transitions in life. I also work in the wellness field, so I am very astute and trained of how to look at a condition of anxiety and depression and see if there is a biological origin to the, deposit, the deposition that a person has. I also do wellness counseling uh, with chronic illnesses and Lyme's disease and also do wellness counseling around things like nutrition and exercise. Now you have some personal experience with chronic disease, in particular we're difficult to diagnose. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where I really got the expertise is in, you know, as you'll hear today in the story, years and years of being in this field and being very fit and active and all of a sudden I get this mystery illness that nobody knows what's going on with me. Or actually let me say mystery symptoms that were very difficult to diagnose and got wrong diagnosis. And that really led me down the track of understanding the biology or psychology even more so. Okay. What were the symptoms that you were experiencing in Give us a little bit of the timeline. Before I even go into that, I, I just want to also say that in my own personal life, I have always been involved in fitness, which I think was really a key for people to know before I talk about yeah. my illness, because 
I grew up in the 60s and 70s. You know, at that time, I was very active in my high school sports as a gymnast and a cheerleader, a volleyball player. And this was a time in New York where women's sports teams were just starting out. A lot of places in the country, you didn't females couldn't participate in sports. So I want to say that I always had an active lifestyle. And in my 20s, I started doing women's races, 5Ks and 10Ks. I've done Outward Bound. And in my 30s and 40s, I did cycling. And I have to say in my 50s, about age 54, 55, I was in the best physical shape that I had ever been in my life. Sculpted body, lean weight, muscular, energetic, completed a 100th century mile. I did a lot of really athletic things. So when I got sick, this really blew me out of the water because it didn't make sense. Here was a, a person who had always been active and a fitness enthusiast, an adventurous, a traveler, ate pretty well, although I did have Diet Coke, but it didn't make any sense about why I got ill. And someone who very much values how active you could be and invested most of your life in, in that. Exactly. So that's why this whole thing that came up on me was a puzzle. But the more I learn about it and I share my story with other people, I find that other people have gone through the same thing. What were the things that you started to notice that made you concerned? The main symptoms happened in 2011, so I've been on what I call this healing journey for about five years. I was training for a 10-mile race. I was in a running club, Potomac Running Club, and I was about at the uh, fifth or sixth mile, and all of a sudden my calves froze up. They froze up to such an extent that I literally had to stop, sit down, massage them, drank tons of water, I was well hydrated, and then when I got up, I could hardly walk. And that symptom lasted for about three or four months. And what was interesting is because I am so well-trained in body work and massage and energy work, I knew all the right things to do. I knew how to massage, I knew how to you know, go to acupuncture and release it. And I was doing those kind of practices in addition to watching my magnesium, my salts, making sure that I was getting electrolytes and nothing I did helped. And then one night the pain was so bad, I went to the ER room and said, please, do an MRI and tell me what's going on, and they wouldn't. The long of the short was it was a virus that had impacted my body, and the virus had actually embedded itself in my knees and was actually eating away at my meniscus tissue, and I was not getting proper fluid or oxygen or the return of the lymph system through my calves, which is why they seized up. This had to be both scary and a relief that you were starting to figure out what was going on. Scary because you do value how active you are and a relief because now you had something to go after. Absolutely. And with that also was the relief but also the frustration with the medical model. I mean, I had MRIs and I had x-rays and everybody kept on saying, your legs are fine, your legs are fine. They didn't MRI my knees though. And that became very indicated because when I did end up having meniscus surgery, which happened soon after that, I was changing a light bulb in my house and I was up on a high ladder. I changed the light bulb and then I just turned to go down the ladder and my knee went out. And what I had to do was have emergency surgery for my meniscus, found a fantastic surgeon in Middleburg. And um, he did the surgery and when, he, when I came out in recovery, he said, you know, I've never seen anything like this. Now let me tell you, this is a surgeon who worked for 20 years with the Atlantic Falcons. I'm sorry, Falcon fans, that they lost, but yay, Patriots, because I went to BU. But he said, I've never seen anything. This wasn't a, 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 a clean cut like a sports injury. This was as if something was eating away at wow. your tissue. The edges were really kind of frayed. So I don't know what happened here. It was eventually identified as a virus. How did they discover that? Well, the next main symptom was vertigo. So I was at the airport, it was 2011, after my niece. I was waiting on the, the line to go through security, and all of a sudden I got dizzy. And I thought, what is this? I've never been dizzy before. And I reached to the man behind me and I said, I don't feel very well. I have a banana in my bag. Could you give me a banana? He got the banana from my bag, I ate it, and my dizziness only got worse. He called the security guard, they came over with a wheelchair, and I had to be wheelchaired through security, which was actually kind of fun, but I could not move my head. And I got through security, they set me up, I sat down, and they called ER. 
and the EMTs came and they checked me out. All of my vitals were fine, but I still was dizzy and they wanted me to go to the, the hospital. And I said, absolutely not. My flight's in an hour. I'm not leaving here. I'll get through this. I never experienced this before. Of course, I don't tell them that. And somehow I sit through this vertigo. It got better after 45 minutes. I board the plane and then I was fine. Six months later, I get a severe vertigo attack in my house as I'm eating dinner and was actually so debilitated, I spent two hours uh, lying on the cold bathroom tile floor, unable to move, to talk, or to open my eyes. And it was an emergency situation, of which after two hours, I was able to squint my eyes open, get help from my son who came over. So the second major sign was vertigo. None of my medical doctors could figure this out. My primary care, I went to a neurologist, no brain tumor, everything looked fine. And it wasn't until I went to an integrative medicine doctor that looked at all my files. He took two hours with me and he looked at my, my bones, my muscles, my surgery, my dizziness, my blood work. And he said, Suzanne, I think you have Lyme's disease. And so Dave Stewart was the first one that diagnosed me with Lyme's disease. However, let me also say other doctors had, but they gave the test that was infamous with the CDC, not the Western Block test. So I always was negative on CDC. So I was positive and I started Lyme treatment. What other things were you instructed to do based on Lyme treatment? With the Lyme treatment, what I did was a round of uh, antibiotics. So the way that it's treated by functional medicine doctors is you take three or four antibiotics and on a rotating schedule every other day to try to confuse the spirochetes so they rid themselves from your body. But also, I was having a lot of supplements. Also, I was having a really clean diet. I had given up you know, sodas probably 10 or 15 years prior, but I was doing uh, clean eating, no alcohol, no sugar, no gluten. I was watching my water intake, doing more of an alkaline-based diet, lots of greens and lots of fruits. So really clean eating, exercise just a little bit. Now again, I'd been an athlete and I was used to spin cycles for an hour long and heavy weight lifting. I had to stop all of that because not only did I not have the energy from the Lyme disease, but also the vertigo would come back whenever I exercised. And all these things that you were doing, did you actually start to feel better? I started to feel better and I was really excited about that. The other thing that happened to me too is that I had gained about 18 pounds. What that is, is when you have any kind of viruses or Lyme disease, there's a buildup of the uh, intercellular t uh, water and tissue in your body. So I had water and toxins that were in my body that were really bloating me. And no matter what I did, even if I did intermittent fasting, or if, even if I did green juicing every day, even if I eliminated carbs and sugar, I was still not losing my weight, which was really frustrating. So it's a kind of chronic inflammation then. Chronic inflammation, exactly. Yeah. Keeping the weight on. There's more to the story though. There is right? more yeah, to the story. I mean, because symptoms persisted or changed. Yeah, so things first got really better, and then all of a sudden things got worse. During the time where things got better, I also found out about a weight loss program out of New York called the Breakthrough M2, which now I have as part of my, my practice here. And it was a low calorie diet, all clean eating, all meat food eating, vegetables and fruits and nice low lean protein, and a homeopathic remedy that helped with balancing my hormones, it helped with releasing toxins, and it helped with sugar cravings and carb cra cravings. So I lost 18 pounds in three months, in three weeks, which was great. So I was then even feeling more on top of my game. So I thought, oh my, my health is really ba is bad. This was 2014 summer. 2014 uh, December, I started getting the dizziness again. And the dizziness got so bad, by the time that February came around, my integrative doctor diagnosed me with Bell palsy because the dizziness was affecting my brain, my inner ear, and my face began to sag. So a dizziness would then overtake with a bell palsy look, and my left eye was squinting, and I couldn't open it. And the scariest moment was when the dizziness began, and I had my eyes were orbiting, and I couldn't control my eyes. It was kind of that exorcist kind of feeling in your eyes, and I thought, oh no, I have a 
brain tumor. They just couldn't find it. My eyes are going to explode. There's going to be, excuse me, blood all over the, the living room couch. My kids are going to find me and say, what happened to mom? It was one of the most scariest things. So the next day, my son took me to the neurologist, and of course, he said, there's nothing wrong with you. Here we go again. Here we go again. So he sent me to an ENT who diagnosed me with Meniere's disease and BBPV, which is benign bilateral peripheral vertigo. What can you do for that? Not much. You can take meclizine, which is Dramamine. You can avoid salt, sugar, and alcohol, and caffeine. And that's about it. There's a few head exercises that you can do if you get dizzy, and that's it. But it wasn't a cure, and the dizziness persisted and persisted. I had stopped all my antibiotics, swore off of them, went back to my really good diet, and followed this ENT protocol. But I wasn't getting better. Now, at this time, I also had to go on disability for work. And that's very difficult when you're self-employed. I don't have disability insurance, and so I couldn't work full-time. I would have dizzy episodes that would come on out of the blue. So I may be in the middle of counseling a client, and all of a sudden I'd say, you know what? I'm getting dizzy. I need for you to leave. So that persisted, and I was really at loss. I was going to my healers, who were wonderful. I was going to my acupuncturist, my massage therapist, and it wasn't until I went to a healer that I'd actually trained with in the 1980s. Her name is Sue Greer. And she said, you know, Suzanne, I just read this book. I think it's going to help you. And this book was the groundbreaking key that helped turn my health around. And it is Anthony Williams' book called The Medical Medium. Now, there's a story behind all of this, too, so let me backtrack. <laughs> let me just say that when you study healing in the 1980s or 90s, it looks like this frou-frou kind of thing, and uh, you know, mind-body therapy wasn't even invented at that point, really. But I had studied healing with a retired NASA scientist, Barbara Brennan, who was really instrumental in opening me up to what's called energetic fields and being able to learn how to be clarencentian, which is feel, en feel energy. So I was around all this kind of energy stuff. So back in 2014, when I was really at a loss to what to do, I contacted a very famous medical medium called Mona Lisa Schultz. Not only is she a medical medium and psychic, she is a doctor, she's board certified as a psychiatrist, and she also has a PhD in neuroscience. So this woman is a brain of her brain. She was in her late 30s when I heard her talk. And she also had this kind of features where she looked a little bit ET-ish. But I think it's because um, my, my perception and uh, my off-the-couch diagnosis is I think she has Hashimoto's a thyroid problem and then one where her eyes are more kind of bulging. So I look at her website. It's $500 for a one-hour consult. And I'm thinking, $500. Here I've spent, which is the other thing, tens of thousands of dollars finding what's wrong with me and all my medical expenses. I said, I'm going to go for it. So I signed up for a one-hour consult with her. It was fascinating. She first goes into the emotional body and describes all of that. And then she said, I'm not exactly sure what's going on with you medically, but I can tell you this. You have a water imbalance. And it starts in your head, and it goes all the way down, and something's off with your water. And I said to her, I drink tons of water and I actually do urinate a lot. She goes, it's not that, there's something else going wrong. The second thing is, your thyroid's low, you have to adjust your thyroid. And number three, I want you to take two supplements. One is cholesterol and one is rhododolia. Both of them are immune building supplements. So I followed that protocol. Why that becomes important is because when I'm reading the book Medical Medium, what he basically says, Anthony Williams, is that he has found, and he, yes, he channels and he speaks with angels and um, higher level forms of energetic people, is that underneath the majority of illnesses and cancers and autoimmune diseases is the Epstein-Barr virus. Now, I was familiar with this because when I was in my teens, I was diagnosed with Epstein-Barr virus, which the doctor never used the word mono, but that's how we know it, mono, the kissing disease. And then in the early 1990s, when I went through a very difficult divorce and my own trauma experience from that, 
I was diagnosed with the Epstein-Barr virus and my immune system was totally shot. So reading this, I then marched into my primary care physician's office, whom she knows me well, she respects me, she knows at times I could be a little kooky. I said, Jessica, test me for the Epstein-Barr virus. She takes the test and lo and behold, she writes back on the labs, you're active infectious for Epstein-Barr. My lab numbers were 30 times the norm. So you wanna have under 37 for a normal Epstein-Barr, I was 650. That was a groundbreaking piece of information. So I followed Anthony Williams' protocol for Epstein-Barr and I started to get better. However, went to my ENT and I said, please do a CAT scan of my face, of my head, second one that was done. And what he noticed in the CAT scan was you have a disintegrating superior semicanal dissonance. And I said, what is that? <laughs> Never heard about it. And you know what? It wasn't known until 1997. And it is a disintegrating of an inner bone in your ear canal, that's superior, top of. And it was disintegrating. And when it disintegrates, it begins to leak fluid in your head into your ear canal and creates imbalance or dizziness. So right away, I went back to Dr. Mona Lisa Schultz. She saw that there was a water imbalance. He was picking up a water imbalance. And so I said, Dr. McKenzie, well, what do we do about this? And he says, we watch it. I said, we watch it. He goes, yeah, I can do the surgery. I've done it before. We have to build up the bone. We put in like a titanium plate in the bone, but we have to go through your ear and it's very close to the brain, and if we don't have to do it, we don't want to do it. I said, but will it help with my dizziness? He said, it will, but it's not going to help with your hearing loss because at this point, this summer and this fall, I had now lost 100% hearing in my left ear. So I'm now being evaluated for a very unusual specialized hearing aid because it's only on one ear. So he said, we're gonna wait for that. But instead, I knew that it was my bone that is leaking fluid, and I asked him, could it be either the Lyme's disease, which Anthony Williams says, Lyme's disease can be a false positive if you have Epstein-Barr syndrome, another groundbreaking piece of information. I said, could the Epstein-Barr virus, the bacteria, be eating away at my bone? And he said, Viruses can do that. Bacteria can do it. So at this point, Dave, I kind of had an idea of what was going on. My summary is I had a false positive line because I got worse at one point with the antibiotics because guess what? Epstein-Barr virus, bacteria or viruses don't take favor to antibiotics and can actually make the Epstein-Barr virus worse. So I am on my own treatment plan for Epstein-Barr. I'm being treated by my ENT, and he's working with my ear canal, and we're watching it. And I'm going slowly back to my exercises, and I'm doing really clean, good eating. Just to summarize and make sure I understand, you're following your own protocol to pursue the Epstein-Barr virus. You're working with your physician to pursue the physical damage that the Epstein-Barr has done to you. Yes. In addition, I'm working with my primary care, who is an integrative physician, on mercury detox. Because in 2010, I went to another wonderful man who's off the grid, Bob James, and he did you know, the saliva and hair analysis and found that I had very high lead poisoning and mercury poisoning in my body, toxic levels that were off the charts. Now this is very important too because whenever you have toxic loads in your body, they also need to be dispelled so that you can help clear the viruses out of your body and help build your immune system. So my immune system was compromised for decades and decades. I mean, when I look back, it's amazing I was even able to function and be athletic as I was. And I think that's where my mindset comes in because as I found and as we could find with the recent Super Bowl, with Brady is that when you have a mindset and you set your mindset to anything, 
you can overcome certain body physical conditions. Conjecture on my part, more than likely, your being so active and pursuing a healthy lifestyle helped as well. It was a lifesaver. If, if I didn't have the personal experience and the professional career I did, I would say almost 100% guaranteed I would be disabled, I'd be unable to work, and I'd have to be taken care of. That's how bad I was. I mean, even when my son helped me in 2014 and 15, and he came in the house and he saw me, he said, Mom, what has gone wrong with you? Because he knew, and I'm known as being the picture of health and fitness. As I said, I had a killer body at age 55 that you know, men in their 30s would turn their head and women would say, are you a personal trainer? I mean, that's how in shape I was. So this was a total 180 degrees turn. And so if I didn't have these things behind my belt, all of them, from you know, my education, from my energy work and body work, from my counseling, from my mind-body integration, from my meditation practice, I wouldn't be where I am at all. It's an amazing story. Thank you, and I'm writing about it. I finally, I've been inspired by people like you who've written a wonderful book and other friends that I know that are writing. I'm writing about it because I think the message is just so, so strong about, first of all, there's nothing written a lot about vertigo, and I'm going to start out with vertigo, but also about these viruses, and then how do you really embark on a personal health journey? Now, I know, as you do with your personal health coaching and your personal training, you help people have a plan of how to improve their eating and and nutrition and how to improve their physical bodies. And some it's written about how to go around a healing crisis. I don't think enough. It's a story of persistence. It's a story of keeping an open mind. It's a story of making sure you're doing all the right things for yourself. On the theme of doing all the right things for yourself, you already were pursuing a very healthy lifestyle, but you've had to make other changes. So if you were to compare what you're doing now as far as nutrition, this is the food cast. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. Nutrition yes. compared to maybe where you were before this whole journey started. Yeah, uh, I mean... What would you say some of the big things you're doing? The big things you're doing are saying, I, like everybody, uh, you know, get tempted by bad food and alcohol. So I would say before this all happened, I'd be the kind of person that two or three times a week I'd have a couple of glasses of wine, either with friends or with dinner. I no longer do that. I have cut out alcohol. I will have alcohol like a special occasion. I'll have a glass of champagne here or there. So I've cut out alcohol. I was always pretty good with sugar, but of course I would like chocolate chip urges or I'd go to Starbucks and get Justin's peanut butter cups. I mean, I would have downfalls where occasionally I would go and get the cookies, the chocolate, maybe some gelato. I no longer do that anymore, so sugar's out. Carbs, really low carbs, gluten-free for sure, but I also watch gluten-free products because it could be sugar in those carbs. I basically am very low carb and I'll stick more with quinoa, I'll stick with wild rice, those kind of carbs. I also now green juice every day and I become addicted to it and sometimes I'll even green juice twice a day. And so I have a special formula that I used that I do have to say is largely Anthony Williams green juice for detoxing because I have cleared myself from the lead in my body. My mercury is still high, so I have to clear it. And I want to do kind of something that you said, Dave. I know that you're not a big fan about supplements. You say we can get it from the food. So I'm trying to do green juices and a little bit of supplements to detox the mercury poisoning in my body, which actually takes a long time to do. So I have a special green juice formula that I'll use, and I'll share with you what it is. Okay. I do it every morning. Actually, this morning I had two because now I absolutely love it. So it's high alkaline, of course. I do organic blueberries, cucumbers, organic kale, celery, fresh cilantro, a little bit of lemon, dulce, which is wild Atlantic sea vegetables that are sold in places like Mom's or Whole Foods, and it's dried, spirulina, powdered magnesium, because the other thing to know about magnesium is when you have Lyme's disease or bacteria and viruses in your body, you will usually be very depleted in magnesium. And you have to have a lot of magnesium to really have the uptake to get back to the right levels. And then I'll also do a plant-based or vegan-based protein powder. Any idea how the mercury in lead exposure happened? Yes. Glad you asked that question. There is a geography evaluation that you can do, and somewhere online, I forgot the name, 
but you put in your hometown where you grew up and it will tell you what was present in the environment at that time that you were being raised. So I grew up in Franklin Square, which is on Long Island in New York. And so she plots these points in this particular geography graph and she finds out that during this time in my life, born in the 1950s, lead and mercury were toxic in the environment. And anybody that grew up during that time most probably has that in their body. Now, of course, there was asbestos and lead paint at that time. And my mother was great about interior decorating and painting. So it could have come from lead paint. I did have a lot of tuna fish when I was growing up. I also don't eat any more tuna fish. I gave up tuna fish five years ago because I just don't trust that, that, that it's free from mercury. That's where we think the mercury poisoning and lead poisoning came in. I'm afraid about that site. I grew up about a mile from a super fun site, so... Oh, no. Oh, no. And you haven't had... No, you know, you being a super-duper researcher and techie guy, you could probably find right. what that test yeah. is. Yeah. So as far as eating fish, you still eat some fish, though? Yes, yes. Of course, I, I'm, I'm only organic, and I do wild fish, so wild salmon, haddock. I stay away from the, uh, the crawl seafood, like your lobsters and your clams and mussels, although I have them occasionally. Because usually what I've done in my own research is see those type of sea creatures that are at the bottom of the ocean tend to eat more of the, the crap, if you will, that accumulates at the bottom of the sea. So I'll try to do more of the swimming kind of okay. fish. And then I'll do um, organic poultry. And I do do grass-fed beef. So I do protein. I probably eat uh, meat, seafood, poultry, protein three or four times a week. And you're focusing on fish that are pretty low in the food chain, so they don't have the accumulation of, of mercury. There you go, yes. So. Yeah, yes. Okay. As far as dairy, are you... Well, you know, um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about mindful eating. I love dairy. However, when I also did... I've done so many tests and so many evaluations. I mean, if I even told you how many doctors, how many tests, how many MRIs, how many CAT scans how many food allergy tests are. I do have a negative reaction to dairy. Now, it's, it's called a sensitivity issue to dairy, not an allergic reaction mm -hmm. to dairy. So I stay away from milk, but I love cheese. I'll tend to go more for goat's cheese. And occasionally I'll do yogurt, but for the most part, I've wiped out yogurt. So cheese is the one go-to that is my downfall that I love. The cheese tends to have less of the lactose component that is what's irritating to most people. So that Exactly, right. Why that, uh, why that still works for you. Is there anything else that you want to bring up? In um, I just want to say I want to inspire people that are listening that if you have a health crisis and it's been a mystery, there is hope for you. And I think the best resources are going to books that are a little bit off the beat and looking at research that's done by Michael Pollan, looking more at your vegan kind of books, as well as beginning to have an open mind about things in the world of energetics and, and psychic phenomena, because there is a lot of wisdom that I have gained from that that has helped that. And so be open-minded about that. Right. But keep on persisting and pursuing because there are answers for you. Find a good functional or integrative medicine doctor, and Dave may know a few in his area. I know a few here. Keep moving forward and believe. Meditation practice was the other thing that saved me, is I am a trained meditation teacher, and my meditation practice helped me so much just being able to surrender into my breath and to focus and to know that there's always a next breath, even when you think that there's not going to be. So I want to inspire you to develop some kind of a practice like a meditation practice or a yoga practice so that you become more mindful about your body and your breath. It's a lot of mind over matter. It's persistence in managing your own health because if you don't do it, no one else is going to do it for you. Yeah, it's the and patient the, advocate right, theme again. Right. And that open mind thing is really is really key. It's okay to be skeptical about some of these alternative or complementary therapies, but it doesn't hurt to learn about them. Rarely does it hurt to pursue them and even if it was a placebo effect, who cares if you're feeling better? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Suzanne goes over her personal mindful eating practice, and then I do a typical stupid take of one of my own. But I just want to wrap up a few things. First, 
Despite Suzanne's compliment of my skills, I haven't yet found the site that helps identify mercury and lead risk based on geographic area. I'll keep poking around, and if I find it, I'll add it to the show notes. Second, her whole story is a different angle of the mind over matter discussion, that mindset discussion. Through brute force of persistence and curiosity, she's honing in onto the optimal solution for what's ailing her. In some sense, she was lucky because she could tie direct cause and effect between symptoms. Her pain and vertigo symptoms seemed to come immediately after some action, such as running or eating a banana, and that helped with troubleshooting. My third observation is that Suzanne's experience is not unusual. Physicians seem to get frustrated the more symptoms we as patients accumulate. As someone who spent a lot of time debugging stuff in his life, I can empathize with how hard it is to isolate the real cause of a problem. Still, the onus is on us as patients to navigate through the health system. One of Suzanne's breakthroughs came through working with her integrative medicine physician. Did you hear what she said? She spent two hours going over her history with her doc. Two hours! That's unheard of. If you find a doctor like that, he or she is a keeper. In summary, to paraphrase Mitch McConnell, she had warning signs. She was given several bullcrap explanations. Nevertheless, she persisted. And as you persist through this foodcast, let's talk a little bit about mindful eating. There are foods that, while you're managing a very clean eating lifestyle, there are foods that you crave. There are foods that I crave, and this is my downfall. And um, as you know, Dave is really big and good into mindful eating. I am as well. So even though I know these practices, there are cravings that I have because the other thing that I went through is this feeling of deprivation, you know, that I couldn't have these types of foods anymore because if I ate them, I literally would have a vertigo attack within 10 seconds. So if I went to your holiday party and I had a glass of wine and a chocolate chip cookie, within 10 to 20 seconds, I'd be on the floor with vertigo. So there was a direct link between my gut and my brain with the vertigo. So I gave up a lot of that bad stuff, but I crave popcorn. So even Saturday night, my son take me, took me to the Caps game and he had to prepare this wonderful dinner beforehand. He's now a gourmet cook uh, on the side and we had dinner at his condo and then we, we took the train into the Caps game. You know, he's having a couple of beers. I'm not having, I'm having my water. And I have this urge for popcorn. So he gets me this bag of popcorn. And if you've ever been to a Caps game, the, the popcorn bags are, are supersized. And I start eating and I really, I can't stop. And this isn't the good GMO-free popcorn. A little bit of butter, but lots of salt. So I'm eating this and I'm saying, this is so good. I really want to eat it. The game's so good. I'm stuffing my face. And I just got carried away with being real glutton about it. Uh, and quite truthful, I'm human like we all are, and eating all this popcorn. And I was halfway through this giant super duper bag and I said, what am I doing? Have I lost my mind? This has a lot of salt. If you have Meniere's disease, you're not supposed to have high salt. All over me, I mean, it's you know, dropping down into my lap. It's all over the floor. You know, I've, the person I've, sitting in front of you. The person, yeah. <laughs> what am I doing? And so I caught myself. So. When I get into what I call my addictive eating pattern, I become mindless. So when I realize that, I stop, I put the bag down, I actually close my eyes, I take a breath, and I gather my thoughts, and I said, what did I just do? Now, instead of really being negative on myself, I say, you got carried away, you were craving popcorn, you love popcorn, but you overdid it. So now you need to become more centered, and more mindful and you need to stop. So what I will do is that will be kind of the first course of my addictive eating, if I will say. And my addictive eating is popcorn, it's blue corn chips with melted cheese. Those are my two vices. So I'm not going for chocolate chip cookies. I'm not going for cake. I'm not going for ice cream. I'm not going for, you know, chocolate bars. And so I rationalize it by, to myself and I say, at least I'm eating pretty good, clean food to be addicted upon, but it's not. It's not if I'm consuming that much. Your personal mindful eating practice is, first of all, recognizing when it's occurring, showing some compassion to yourself, and then being able to just put it away. 
Right, that's how I begin. I begin, and I love the word compassion, so thank you. Because we could all go into our shame and our embarrassment and guilt about it. So when I realize I'm doing it, I put the food down, I close my eyes, I take a breath, I think about what I'm doing, I have compassion for myself that I was human, and I've been doing so well, I just need to recenter and get back on track. Right. And then from there, I start out with cooking with intention. So even this morning, as I'm making my green juice, I'm doing it with a lot of intention of what I'm putting in the blender, how much I'm putting in, and I also then, with that intention, bring in compassion and appreciation. Appreciation for the food that I have in front of me, that it's all organic, that it's clean. Appreciation from the food source of where it came from, the farmer that maybe is in Lamb County, or the organic food that's being grown and shipped to Wegmans. And then just gratefulness for the plant, for the earth, for the water, for the sunlight that is bringing me this fresh food. So I like to start my, my cooking with intention and preparing the food with a blessing, if you will, of just bringing in all of those aspects of gratefulness, appreciation, and intention of how I am eating this. And then when you're done in this preparatory phase, how do you actually start interacting with the food? Then I try my best, and I have to say I'm not 100%, to sit down before I eat. Being very busy and active with a lot of you know, work things and social activities and now doing some athletics, I can really eat on the go, and that's not good for me. So I realize I have to sit down with intention to eat. So with my smoothie, I put, or my green juice, I put a straw in it. And so I sip it slowly. So it's the intention of slowly eating my green juice. And then when I'm actually eating a meal, of slowly eating my food and taking a breath with some, uh, breath with each food, in between each food, but taking a pause in between each bite. So I may bring the fish up to my mouth and I chew it with intention and slowness, feel the taste in my mouth, feel how the saliva mixed in, and then chew it to small pieces because I know that it's going to digest very well. And I take my time with it. So chew slowly, take a breath in between each bite from your fork. And then the other thing that I'm, I've been doing is I used to drink a lot of water during my meal. And what I'm doing a little bit differently is I drink water before my meal to get hydrated and to get a little bit full. And then I take little sips during my meal to really get the food in. And then I take water after my meal, which is another mindful practice that I have in the way that I hydrate. Because I do have low thyroid, I am on armothyroid, I do get very thirsty. I can, I can drink easily you know, half my weight in, in water a day and more because of my thyroid condition. But during the meals, I back off from that. I also then notice when I'm full, so I do practice trying to eat to three quarters full. When I prepare my plate, I do a mindful proportion size, usually many more vegetables than protein. And if I'm having carbs, which is usually the rice and the quinoa, low carbs. And so I mindfully prepare it so that I don't go back for second helpings. If I do go back for second helpings, it will usually be with the vegetables. And then I want to notice when I go back for second helpings if I am full. And so I've developed through the own, my own body work practices, again, all this builds on everything else because I was a body therapist for 13 years, of being able to go inside my body and recognizing when I am really full, which is actually an art. I mean, you teach us, don't you, David? Yes. Yeah, and how do you then tell people to recognize how they're half full or three-quarters full? It's a great question, and it's because each people experience and, and feel these things in different ways. So it's, there's really no way to project a strategy that I might use or you might use onto someone else. So it's really establishing some kind of relative measuring stick. So I like to use the scale of 1 to 10 where you establish how hungry you are, one being, if I don't eat something right now, I'm going to pass out, and uh -huh, ten uh -huh. being like a scene from a Monty Python movie. 
<laughs> so es- establishing that and recognizing that both before you eat and afterwards at a regular basis and just some way to define and make it meaningful to the person. Most people don't even know that I work with. Most people don't even really have a, the concept of how to tell whether they're full or not. So you re- that, that in itself is a practice. Mm-hmm. It's a practice and there's no one right way for anyone but I think find that if you can at least create a language, a, a terminology that you can each can use, it bridges that gap. Mm-hmm. And I find, I like what you shared, and I, and I find the same thing in my mental health counseling, is that sometimes when people have been through a lot of trauma, they are not really in their bodies. So even a first step at times for mindful eating and awareness of fullness is first getting back in your body and developing what I call body awareness, a sense of... Right. I am, ins- I am inside, I do feel inside, and then you can go into the digestion part. It's very much like managing pain. When a patient is in pain, there's no way for you to know how they actually feel. And so, again, it's common now in medical where they either use the smiley face in the hospital or, or a, a number scale. And the last thing just to say with the mindful eating practice is always to end with some prayer of gratefulness. You know, I'm grateful that I have this food to nourish my body and also to visualize and imagine that any of the toxins that are in my body, I've eaten something good and the toxins are just coming out of my body. I am eliminating them and uh, to be grateful for that process. Is there any way that people can follow what you're doing? I do have pages that you can like Facebook. So I do have the Northern Virginia Integrative Therapy Center and I do have inspirational journeys, which are wellness retreats that I lead throughout the country. And Dave and I are working on the one where uh, family wellness, learning how to, to eat with nutrition, how to appreciate family members, and um, how to be grateful with nutrition. So you can like one of those pages. And you can always just look on my website. I have information there. I do professional speaking. I am for hire, if you will to come to organizations or to lead seminars on different wellness coaching or weight loss or getting your health back or creating personal wellness plans. So if you're interested and that's an economical way to to do it, call in a group and we can arrange for that to happen. Okay. Well, thanks. And I will have links to what Suzanne mentioned on the show notes. And of course, you can come to my website as well to find out how Suzanne and I will be working together in the future. So thanks, Suzanne, very much for this. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. We talked about supermarkets preying on your impulse at the start of this episode. But what about drugstores, our meccas of promoting good health? I live a block away from Walgreens. Walgreens' motto is, we're on the corner of happy and healthy. The implication being that they want to be who you think of when you shop for your well-being. The people there are very nice, But I wonder about the happy and healthy thing. The main function of a drugstore is to sell drugs, and those are way in the back of the store. Understand why they put them there. You don't want people waiting around for the prescriptions, milling and clogging up the aisles by the entrance. As you work your way away from the pharmacist, that's where they have all the -the over-the-counter drugs. I suppose that's so you're close to the pharmacist in case you have any questions about the cold medicine or Dr. Scholl's foot pads. Also, that may be so shoppers are further from the entrance, and this gives employees more time to remind the shoppers that they accidentally stuffed 12 bottles of cold medicine in their various pockets in an attempt to run some chemistry experiments in their bathtubs at home. But ulterior motives or no, you can't navigate to the exit without passing ever-escalating offers of impulse buys until you get to the cash register. And the rack of crave-worthy, unhealthy snacks are maybe even worse than at the supermarket. I never see cans of bacon cheeseburger Pringles at my supermarket checkout, but sure enough, there they are at Walgreens. So much for healthy. And it isn't just Walgreens. I live two blocks away from a CVS. CVS made a big deal several years ago about its decision to no longer sell tobacco products. They're also expanding with lines of healthier snacks, fewer candy bars, and more kind bars. Still, when you get to the checkout, there's nothing but racks of colorful sugar. I guess it's too much to expect them to change. Change has to come from within. I decided to run a bit of an experiment to simulate what may happen with real people instead of automatons like me. The premise is I'm stressed out after a long day of work, I'm blood sugar impaired, 
and I'm confronted with the cash register candy rack. My first step was to poll people on social media to find out what their go-to treats would be, figuring I'd mimic them. The immediate input I got was gummy bears, Cadbury mini eggs, Reese's peanut butter cups times two, Twizzlers times two, Almond Joy, peanut M&Ms, and really kicking it old school, dots. So problem number one, I'm a guy who's always analyzing and categorizing. When I categorize these suggestions into colorful faux fruit flavor sugar versus fatty nut candy, I end up with a few observations. First of all, 100% of the fruity sugar suggestions came from women. No men voted for food in that category. Men voted exclusively for the fatty nut candy, and some women voted for them too. Surely there's some kind of sociological conclusion we could come up with based on that data. The other observation is, what's wrong with you people? Couldn't one of you choose a potato chip or something? In any event, because of the stratification of the sample, I like using words like stratification. It makes this sound so much more scientific. Because of the stratifications of the sample, I decided to get one of each and intended to sample them all as part of the experiment. Do these things taste that good when you gorge on all of them? I was afraid about what all that candy would do to my blood sugar. So my impulse buy at Walgreens was one of those instant blood glucose meters people use when they have diabetes. To further promote my desire to binge, I fasted that day. Now, that's not so big a deal. I usually fast once a week, but I never break my fast with 600 calories of pure sugar. To further push the envelope, I did a full workout that day. I don't usually push my activity on fast days, but I did just to further stimulate my appetite. So before I executed on the experiment, I had nothing for the previous 22 hours other than a cup of black coffee, water, and a dose of branched-chain amino acids before the workout. I did them because they allegedly steer your body towards burning fat over muscle when you're in a fasted state. I'm not sure how much I believe it, but I don't have that much muscle, so I don't really want to take a chance. I'm not convinced the branched-chain amino acids do anything. More than likely, they just make my urine more expensive. We pick up with my preparing to break the fast by first taking a benchmark blood sugar reading. I'm adding this note in post-production. This has already been a really long episode and I don't want to walk you through the entire mindful eating experiment. So as you listen to it, don't think I'm going to do what I do with the first candy with all seven. I do have you listen to just a couple of them to give you an idea of what mindful eating is all about. But that's it. Now one aspect of this is not really fair because I have fasted. And people who don't know me well are going to think that I'm going to be starving hungry. But I actually fast about once a week. So I could still probably go a couple hours before I really need to eat. If I was going to judge myself right now on a hunger scale, 1 to 10, 10 being totally full, 1 being absolutely starving, I would say that I'm about a 3 or 4, that I could probably go a few more hours before I really felt I needed to eat. This stuff is not food that I would normally eat. Even though I do like peanut M&Ms and Reese's peanut butter cups, it's not something that I really crave. Oh, I like the Almond Joys too. But it's not something that I really crave. Now I am going to test my blood sugar. My blood sugar actually does tend on the high side. I haven't been diagnosed with diabetes. First, I'm going to prick my finger. Now I'm squeezing out some blood. And my blood sugar is at 89 milligrams per deciliter, so that's kind of normal for a fasted state. Now I am going to begin my meal. I have a plan. I'm going to alternate between chocolate-covered things and fruity-colored things. There are four chocolate things and three fruity things. I'm going to start with chocolate, and before I eat anything, I'm going to just take a breath. I'm going to reflect a little bit too, and in the style of karma sense, I'm going to reflect on three things. First, I'm going to reflect on something kind I did for someone today. And then I reflect on something kind someone did for me. And then I'm going to reflect on the origin and the food. 
Now, this stuff has a lot of ingredients. came from all over the world, no doubt. Very manufactured. So rather than really thinking about that, I'm going to think about the people who came up with these ideas of what I of these impulse buys. wonder what may have motivated them. Now I'm going to move on to taste. And I'm going to start off with a Reese's peanut butter cup. Feeling it in my hand and looking at it. I'm smelling it and I can smell the chocolate and the peanut butter. And now I'm going to take my first bite. I just let it roll around in my mouth a little bit without chewing. See what I can taste. And you taste the chocolate, taste the peanut butter. Delivers on its promise. And have a second bite. See how it compares to the first one. Feeling it go down. I want to see how I feel as I eat it too. If I notice any change in emotions, in body temperature. And one thing I am noticing is just the fact of having two bites of a Reese's peanut butter cup, I'm starting to get hungry which is a common physiological action. It's very sweet. I would say that doesn't need to be that sweet. And drinking a glass of water to try and wash that out. Next, I'm gonna go with my gummy bears. And I got one of each color. So I have yellow, orange, red, and green. And I don't know whether they're supposed to taste different. It's often a good experiment with foods like this. My helper isn't home, so I can't. To not actually know what flavor or color that it is and see how that affects your taste. It's a known element that color actually does affect your taste. When they don't spray Cheetos with that orange spray color and just keep it the color of packing material, people don't know that it's supposed to taste like cheese. Having my yellow one first, it's really sticky and gummy. Not like chewing gum. Has a citrusy taste, the yellow one. I'll go with green next, smelling them. I smell the green and the red. I don't really detect a difference in smell based on color. Checking out the ingredient list of the gummy bears, and they seem to be about exactly the same with just a few differences from the dots and the gummy bears seem to be very same nutritionally. I would not find these at all satisfying. I could live with the rest of my life and never have another gummy bear. Next, I'm going to go with my Cadbury cream egg which I always thought looked disgusting when they show them on TV. <laughs> I'm really starting to feel sick. And I'm worried about getting through the rest of this now. <laughs> I have to say, I've eaten insects for this program, tried the vile Soylent stuff for this program, and was definitely nervous about it beforehand. But neither of those scared me as much as this one did in the end. Insects weren't bad at all. The Soylent was much more vile than I thought it would be. And this I'm just worried about how I'm going to feel when I'm done. It's always good when you're eating mindfully and you're observing with your senses, all your senses. It's also good to feel the tactile change as you chew and the flavor change as you chew. And see if you can detect the different flavors coming out at different times and how increasing the surface area of what you're chewing, how that affects the flavor and the mouthfeel. Yeah, you can totally geek out on mindful eating. That's kind of the point. We have leftovers. Anyone who's local who likes Twizzlers or peanut butter cups or Almond Joys or M&Ms or gummy bears or Cadbury cream eggs, you're welcome to what remains. And it's time to stick my finger again and see how my blood sugar has changed. And my blood sugar is now 106, which isn't bad. It's kind of low, actually. As far as my hunger level after eating all that, I'm going to say... I'm now up to a seven or eight. I don't really want to eat anything more. I feel full, but I also feel very unsatisfied based on what I ate. So I don't know how much of that is mental. It's been an hour, and so it's time for one last finger prick. I'm also assessing my hunger right now. I'm gonna put it at a eight. I'm just not hungry. But let me do my blood test, and here we go. 
really having problems getting blood now. I think maybe all that sugar in my blood has turned my blood into syrup. Okay, my blood sugar is way up. It's 177 an hour later. That last reading really worried me. So I decided to eat some leftover chicken and squash to help mediate the sugar load and tested my blood sugar one hour later, just to be sure. And thankfully it was down to 64. The next morning I woke up with a splitting headache. I don't know if it was a coincidence or not, but kitties, don't try this at home. And so ends an epic edition of the Foodcast, episode 26. Not in a bang, but in a whimper. It was a really long episode. I hope it was useful to explore not only the concepts of mindfulness, but the applications of how it helps when you shop for food, when you eat, when you cook, and as with Suzanne described, when trying to resolve your own health and wellness issues. Mindfulness is what helps you shake up the status quo and break down your habits into what you want to keep and what you want to toss. It's the teachings of Selena Gomez. Shake it up, break it down. And on the subject of habits, as is my habit, I thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Foodcast, please subscribe, share, and review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear, I'd like to know that too. Don't worry about hurting my feelings, because when it comes to that, I depend on another great philosopher and listen to what my old pal Taylor Swift always says. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.